Hello and welcome or welcome back to Marked Out for Fruitfulness. This is talk number nine and we're going to be picking up the story in just a moment in Mark chapter 3 verse 20. I wonder if you would agree with me that following Jesus takes you down a road in which there's blessings and buffetings all at the same time. I used to think that one experienced chapters of well plain sailing and then maybe a season where life got difficult and then wait for plain sailing again. I don't think that anymore. In fact I don't think the sailing analogy is any good at all. I think it's far more like a train ride in which a train sits on two tracks at once and it's blessing and buffeting that happens all at once. It, it's praise and persecution often at the same time. It's crowds and critics. And this is what we see tonight. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. It help if I looked at the right chapter. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples weren't able even to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Well, very quickly, who were Jesus' family? I wonder if you know. Did you know that in Mark chapter 6, his brothers, at least more technically half-brothers, are uh, named? And it's mentioned that he has six sisters as well. That's sisters, I didn't say six sisters. His family says, isn't this Jesus the carpenter, Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? Well, why do you think his family thought he was out of his mind? We can take a guess at that. Maybe it's because they gave up, he gave up the secure job of carpenter. Maybe it's because they don't much like the look of a rather odd bunch that he's just appointed to be with him, the Twelve. Or more probable still, is it that they've spotted, because it wasn't difficult to spot, that he's stirring up a lot of aggression and a lot of hostility, and you really didn't want to take on the religious leaders. It, you came to a sticky end if you did that. Well, picking up the story again in verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, says Jesus, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Well, 
The charge they level against Jesus is heavyweight indeed. In fact, it's hard to think of a heavier charge or a more challenging and difficult one to try and brush off. Because if someone does accuse you in all seriousness of being demonized, how are you going to prove that you're not? How will Jesus answer, answer this? Well, he answers in two ways. First of all, he questions their logic. He says, look, you've seen, I cast out demons. Why would Satan ever want to cast out demons? That would be like dividing himself. The house would collapse. And then his second uh, defense is to describe what he has done and will do. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's goods. And it could be that he's referring to the fact that he's already um, won one tussle with Satan in the temptations. But I suspect that what he's doing more than that even is looking forward to the cross. Where, as we read in Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers and nailed them on a cross. We're drawn back into this spirit world, aren't we? And recognizing that Jesus recognized it exists. It's real. And he has an accuser. That's what the name Satan means. I think it's important for us to know the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know about Satan and spiritual warfare. But the Bible does tell us everything we need to know and it's good for us to know. It reveals enough. John, in his first letter, said the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work or to unravel the devil's work. And that's exactly what he did. I, I find it very helpful to remember and I suggest you'd find it helpful to remember too that this is not a battle between equals slugging it out. No, it isn't. Let me give you a few differences. First of all, God is omnipotent. It's a long word, but it's worth holding on to. Omni, that means all, and potent as in powerful. He's all powerful. Satan is only as powerful as God allows him to be. It's a dependent power. And uh, we see that, don't we, in this parable that Jesus is talking about. He says he can tie up the strong man and then plunder his house, and that's exactly what he does. And then God is omniscient, as in he knows all things, whereas Satan's knowledge is very limited. I, I love to think, because it's true, he has no foreknowledge. He can't plan ahead. He's always on the back foot. He's always reacting to what's just taken place. God is omnis, omnipresent. Omnipresent. That means, say, he can be everywhere at once. Whereas Satan is local. He's tied to one place at one time. And finally, the Lord reigns whereas Satan is defeated. Yes, it's true, he has a limited amount of power at the moment, but he has been defeated on the cross. He is like a cobra whose venom has been extracted, but he's still doing damage as he thrashes around and awaits his final judgment and being cast into the pit forever.
Well, so much for that little summary on the difference between satanic power and the Saviour's power. But what are we to make of this curious little verse in verse 28, which has worried a lot of people? Truly, I tell you, says Jesus, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Now, most pastors at this point, and most commentators, uh, spend an age discussing pastoral cases of people they've met who are desperately worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin. And they all point out, and they do well to point out, that it's not an action that's being referred to here. It's not like uh, we can do something so utterly dreadful, murder, adultery, or breaking a promise, or lying, or greed, that God simply can't forgive it. That isn't what's being said here. And in fact, it has accurately been reflected. If you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, that's an excellent way of knowing you haven't. Because if you're worried about it, it means you're well on the road to repentance. No, I, I can confidently look you in the face and say, God's mercy and forgiveness is so huge, so deep. I know with certainty that there's nothing that you've done that God cannot and will not forgive if you'll repent and you'll ask him. That's what scripture says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we're told if we'll confess our sins, God's faithful and just and he'll forgive us. But here's the thing, and it's a major point. The agent by which we come to know we need forgiveness is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. It's his work in us that drives us to the Father to ask for his mercy. So if we block our ears or harden our hearts and become stiff-necked, to use a whole host of biblical imagery, and we utterly refuse to go to the Father to ask for forgiveness in Jesus Christ, then there's no way we can be forgiven because we're ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Let me read you a little extract from Billy Graham's website answering a question about what is this sin that can't be forgiven. This is what he writes. The point for us is that if we have received Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord, we have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. We've accepted his witness. One study Bible explains it like this. To commit this sin, one must consciously, persistently, deliberately and maliciously reject the testimony of the Spirit to the deity and saving power of the Lord Jesus. If a person keeps doing that until death, there is no hope of forgiveness and eternal life in heaven. Once again, he says, the unpardonable sin isn't something particularly grievous that you've done before or after accepting Christ. Nor is it thinking or saying something terrible about the Holy Spirit. It's deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness and invitation to turn to Jesus until death ends that opportunity. And that's exactly what these Pharisees were in danger of doing. They maligned Jesus to his face. Now I just say, as we come towards the close of this evening's thought, most commentators angle their comments at people who are concerned 
they have committed the unforgivable sin and as we've seen they haven't if that's the question they're asking but I begin to question actually whether we should be concerned that many of the people we meet and maybe us are not nearly concerned enough about the consequences of sin itself and of rejecting Jesus the people of Jesus' day recognized they were reliant on God's forgiveness and mercy they had such an elaborate sacrificial system and it shows this the people of our day do we know that not so much Voltaire humorously but wrongly said God will forgive me that's his job I'm afraid not Voltaire not unless you go to him and ask for forgiveness God will judge us he will judge with perfect justice no one will complain about the justice of their sentence we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God and that will be a terrifying and frightening and dreadful day for any who have seen the wonderful works of Jesus and attributed them to Satan or any who have persistently hardened their heart against the invitation that God gave them in their lifetime to come to him and receive his mercy here are the questions for this evening question one do you agree that following Jesus one experiences blessing and buffeting at the same time question two how did you become aware of a need to ask Jesus to forgive us your sins and question three we all want justice but at the same time we're not keen on being in front of the judge what do you think happens at the last judgment <laughs>